Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. And today we have the great honor of having our counterpart over at Bloomberg News join us to chat about the end of the term. Greg Store is the Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg News. So thank you so much for joining us today, Greg. My pleasure and hello to both of you. Yesterday, the Supreme Court dropped its final two opinions of the term. But first... Oh, yeah. We have a, a new voice on the court that I'm going to have to memorize and be able to uh, to recognize when I listen to arguments. Right, Kimberly? We have a brand new justice that joined us. That's right. Justice Stephen Breyer officially stepped down on Thursday at noon and shortly after Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was sworn in. We got to view this one live for the first time because the court provided um, some live streaming of it. And we saw ju- the Chief Justice swear in Justice Jackson giving her the constitutional oath. And then that was followed up by Justice Breyer, who administered the judicial oath. So um, welcome to Justice Jackson, because I'm sure she's listening right now. (laughs) (laughs) We hope so. You know, one of the things that um, I think will be really interesting to watch with Justice Jackson on the court, um, and that does not come through even though the court is providing some live audio, is that in the courtroom during arguments, justices are very... um, they interact with each other quite a bit, and that just doesn't get picked up unless you, you know, are able to stand in line for many hours or if there were ever cameras in the courtroom. And so, you know, with Justice Jackson coming onto the court and Justice Breyer stepping back, we have kind of a flip in all the seatings. And one thing I'm going to be keeping an eye on is for the first time, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas are going to be sitting next to each other. Both of them have been pretty active during oral arguments and kind of chatting with their neighbors um, and just wondering what, um, you know, seeing them interact on the bench will be something I'm looking forward to. Greg, do you think that with them sitting next to each other, they're going to come to some reasonable, um, you know, kind of common ground on Roe versus Wade and guns, or or will it really be more like stuff on the margins? You, you know, uh, you know, huge deals can be struck uh, while sitting on the Supreme Court bench. Uh, now, famously, you know, back in the back in the day, justices used to you know, send notes to one another about the score of the baseball game that was going on at the, at the same time. I agree with you. It is, it is interesting. Actually, one of the, uh, one of the dynamics that I think is interesting is that like Justice Kagan, who sits between Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, has very little to say. To, she doesn't talk to Justice Alito much at all, but she talks to Justice Kavanaugh a lot. <laughs> um, now, I don't know that that means anything at the end of the day in terms of how the rulings come out, but Um, You know, at least it shows there is some personal dynamic between them. Right. So um, I did mention that the court dropped its final two opinions. We're going to chat a little bit about um, one of those cases. And because last week we dedicated our entire show to abortion, we're going to catch up on some other cases that happened. So first, Greg, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this EPA case that dropped yesterday? Sure. In some ways, it was a very weird case, and it was a case the court was pretty aggressive about taking. And the reason I say that is because this case was really focused on something that happened years and years ago, the Obama Clean Power Plan, uh, a a plan that never took effect because the Supreme Court blocked it. And uh, the, the way it got to the court was... Uh, through a case involving the the Trump effort to repeal the Obama Clean Power Plan, even though it had never taken effect. So 
there's that weird procedural history that, that gets us to this point where this is not a case where the Supreme Court is saying, you know, you Biden administration, you just did something and we're going to tell you whether or not that was okay. This is sort of about, you know, a little history lesson about whether something in the past was okay. And then we get to kind of extrapolate in terms of what that means going forward. So uh, with all that said as, as a backdrop, what the court said in this case is that the Obama Clean Power Plan, which which made this effort to shift power production away from coal-fired power plants and other big greenhouse gas pollutants, um, to shift it to more cleaner sources was beyond the EPA's authority, uh, not something that Congress uh, uh, authorized in the Clean Air Act. And the court got there by saying, in, in large part, uh, there is this thing called the major questions doctrine. And if Congress is going to, to, to um, authorize some agency to do something so big, like, say, restructure the power, uh, power production in the United States, it's got to speak very clearly to that. Uh, they said they, Congress had not done it in this case, and therefore uh, we don't know the exact parameters of what the Biden administration will be able to do. But we do know now they can't do what Obama tried to do, which is to focus on shifting power production away from those existing plants and uh, shifting it to, to greener energy. The administration may be able to do that some other way, but not through regulations uh, directed at, at power plants and their emissions. Now, Greg, is that is that new, This the, the new or the major questions doctrine? Is that a new um, theory here? Uh, depends on who you ask. The, uh, John Are Mark. you a lawyer, Greg? <laughs> That's very lawyerly. No, I'm just somebody who, who read at least uh, portions of both the uh, majority and the dissenting opinion in this case. I mean, the Chief Justice said, no, it is not. Um, it is something that we have done in a variety of forms in a, a variety of other cases. Um, uh, one that's very recent included uh, this shadow docket case from this term involving uh, OSHA's effort to uh, require people at 80 some odd million, uh, 80 some odd million workers at private companies to either get a, a COVID vaccine, COVID vaccines, or to take regular tests. And the court in that case said um, that was outside of the, the OSHA's purview. John Roberts said, yeah, this is something we've done all, all the time. We're just applying it here. Um, and that's why the EPA can't do this. Justice Kagan in dissent said, this is the first time the court has ever use that expression, major questions doctrine, um, that they have created something. And, you know, this is a court that is so heavily focused on statutory text. Um, you know, they parse the words exactly what they mean. And we're not going to look at legislative history. We're not going to look at broader purpose. We're not going to, um, uh, you know, focus on, on things other than those words. And what Justice Kagan said in dissent is, this major questions doctrine is just a way for you guys, if you don't like what the words say, to say, oh, well, because this is so important, we're not going to construe those words in the, in, in, in the most natural way. She called it a get out of text free card, um, which may well be in a term where she had a lot of great lines in her dissenting opinions that may well be uh, her, her, her catchiest. I think I see a monopoly version developing here of SCOTUS version of Monopoly, um, where you have get out of the text free cards. I, I think you should move quickly to, to patent that <laughs> idea, Kimberly, and um, uh, then you can retire from the podcasting business. 
So regardless of whether or not the major questions doctrine is new or whether it's been around for a long time, it seems like it's a really big deal and it's something that's here to stay, at least why we have kind of the current composition of the court. I'm just wondering if you could give listeners a sense of what that means outside the context of environmental law. I mean, this seems like a pretty big deal for, um, you know, other cases dealing with admin law. It does. And I'll confess, I don't have uh, all those answers or even many of those answers because it remains to be seen. But certainly in other aspects of what the EPA does, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, you know, any federal agency that has a broad mandate from Congress, uh, but not a lot of specifics could be affected. And, and, you know, this is especially important at this time when Congress basically can't get anything done, right? I mean, pretty much everybody agrees the way to have done this would have been for Congress to have provided more explicit directions to the EPA. You need the EPA there to handle the the technical details of how it's all implemented. But, um, you know, this is a huge public policy issue where the the people's representatives should be, you know, kind of the first line of, of making this decision. But, you know, we're at a world where Congress uh, can accomplish very, very little. And so we have all these statutes like the Clean Air Act that haven't been updated in any way to account for the fact that, I mean, when the Clean Air Act was written, People weren't thinking about about global warming. They were thinking about, uh, you know, more conventional pollutants. And so, in this world where Congress is not updating these statutes, um, it, it, and you know, a, a president of both parties who are trying to get things done ha- have to rely on their agencies to to push their agenda. This concept of what can an agency do is tremendously important. And there were several cases on religion this term. You know, turning to you, Kimberly. Um, can you talk about, you know, tell us the listeners a little bit about what happened in the in the latest um, case that they ruled on uh, this week, uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District? Right. I can think of really uh, three really big religion cases, all that sort of went the same way and the way that the Roberts Court has been going um, in general. This is an area where the Roberts Court has always kind of been moving um, step by step by step in the direction of a more robust um, right to you know freely exercise your religion and often times kind of at the expense of what states can do to really stay out of religion. And so this case, um, you know, fits within that context. It involves a high school football coach who had the practice of praying before and after games on the 50-yard line. And the district had said that, you know, given that there are students there who may feel coerced to join in this prayer, that that was something they feared might violate the religious rights of students. Um, And the Supreme Court, in a decision that went along ideological lines, said that's not uh, an excuse that the school district can use, that, you know, in doing so, they're actually hostile to religion. Uh, And so, you know, there again, we saw kind of this push and pull between, you know, your right to freely exercise your religion and the ability of states and local jurisdictions to say, you know, religion is great, but we don't want to be involved at all. 
And there's a lot of discussion uh, in the dissent and uh, on Twitter about the facts in this case. Uh, so what, what, what exactly was going on with that? Right. I think this is one of those cases that really show how important the facts can be. And really, I think what every lawyer knows that that facts section that you put up in the front of your briefs really, really matters. And they have been in contention in this case the whole time. The briefing in this case was pretty sharp, I think, on that point, sharper than I had seen. I don't know, Greg, if you feel differently, but it seemed like there was a lot of different disagreement over the basic facts of this case. And that's really what the dissent focused a lot on, too, was, you know, the I think the majority wanted to portray this as kind of a passive um, prayer session where people felt like they could join, but they didn't have to. And then in the dissent, you have uh, sort of these pictures that show large numbers of you know players you know, standing around the coach and you know, that the, I think that happens a lot, but that was just really stark in, in this case. Is that new, the use of pictures in uh, Supreme Court opinions? Uh, we, I think I saw, you know, two opinions this term that had photographs in them. I, I think it, it's not brand new. It has certainly happened a number of times in recent years. And I am remembering a case. It was a search and seizure case involving an automobile where they attached, I think Justice Stevens attached a video um, or or provided a URL for a video. So the court has been doing that more in, in recent years. Can I jump in on, on one thing that Kim, Kimberly said? Absolutely. Just because, uh, and, and one thing I, um, you know, you're totally right. The facts were so important in this case where the majority said, hey, this is only about these three times that the school board cited when it when it suspended this this coach and it's just these three prayers and in none of those do you know is there any evidence that any players joined him or anything like that and the dissent said he's been doing this for years and years and here are these pictures and all this sort of stuff so you're totally right about that and and, and that affected how the, the case came out but I, I really wonder about this case why we why the school board when it suspended him, only pointed to those three times. It sure seems like, from their perspective, if the concern is he's creating a spectacle, he's coercing students, blah 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 blah, that you know you say, and he's been doing this for all these years, and you know, um, you know, players from the other teams are joining him and, and stuff like that. And so it's it's curious to me that we got to this point where um, the, the, what ended up being the losing losing side put itself in a position where the facts were able to be described in a way that that made the case much harder for them. A cautionary tale for all you attorneys listening out there. Yeah, and and school boards. Yeah, and uh, the result in Kennedy uh, didn't seem all that surprising, you know, given the way that the Roberts court has, you know, approached religion cases. Um, Did it strike you as, as any different than what they've decided in the past? No, and I'd be interested to hear if Greg feels the same way, but I really do think that this this court, the Roberts Court, has very much been trying to pull back on a really robust um, view of what's known as the Establishment Clause that, you know, states and localities have pointed to to say, you know, this is just a really fraught area of law and we just want to stay out of religion altogether. Uh, we really see what the Roberts Court is doing is saying when you're doing that, when you are leaving out religious groups based on this concern, what you're really doing is discriminating against religion. Um, And that seems just like a clear line to me that that's really not something that state and local governments can rely on any longer uh, going forward in these cases, or they can expect to rely on them and then lose and have some harsh words from the Supreme Court.
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We're seeing the free exercise clause get elevated and the, the establishment clause uh, get get uh, uh, re- reduced in its importance. One other thought I'll toss out in here that I, that I think is going to be fascinating going forward is that the court has been extraordinarily re- reluctant to ever question anybody's religious belief and that this is a sincerely held religious belief. And so, you know, if somebody says, I have a religious belief that I cannot fill out this form that would facilitate somebody getting contraceptive coverage that I think is is an abortion, the court says, fine. If Coach Kennedy says, I have a sincere religious belief that I really need to pray on the 50-yard line after this game, and it's not not enough that I can go into the press box and, and pray, they're really deferential. But now we are seeing uh, instances where folks on the other side of the issue are saying things like, I have a religious belief that I need to be able to get an abortion. Um, or I have, uh, you know, some other religious belief that, um, you know, maybe kind of cuts against where we think the conservative court is going. And so it's going to be fascinating to see if and how the court distinguishes between, you know, its previous cases where it just doesn't want to question anybody's particular religious beliefs and cases where I would imagine they would be skeptical that that's a genuine religious belief that needs to be protected. Right. And I think that point um, was made pretty clear in a case from earlier in this term in Ramirez versus Collier, which the court had kind of expedited off of its shadow docket, um, added to, you know, get full briefing and argument. And this was a case um, that kind of pitted two of the concerns of the conservatives against one another. It was um, somebody on death row who wasn't challenging their execution, but what could happen in the execution room? And they were saying that, you know, they had re- religious beliefs that they needed to be touched and certain things needed to be said. And it struck me that this was one of the very few times, maybe the only time where I've seen the justices question whether or not that was a sincerely held belief and where that could lead the court if they just sort of take every you know death row defendant's claims that these are their sincerely held religious beliefs is it going to be kind of used to... Uh, further delay executions. Uh, I thought that was really interesting because it's not the kind of scrutiny, as you mentioned, that they put really on other um, expressions of religion. So should we turn to guns now? Uh, Lydia, we got a big Second Amendment case that we just ignored in our last podcast uh, to talk about abortion. So let's catch people up. This is a case out of New York. What's going on in the Bruin case? That's right. Um, It seems like so much has happened in the last week that, um, you know, this kind of got lost um, when we were talking um, a little bit. But last week, uh, it was only a week ago, the Supreme Court uh, struck down New York's law that limited who could carry a handgun outside of the home uh, for self-defense. This case is significant because this is the first time that the Supreme Court has said that the Second Amendment protects the right of people to carry a gun in in public. Um, They haven't had a major ruling on the Second Amendment in, gosh, over a decade. Um, So this was a big one. And so what did the court decide? I mean, you said that they said that um, guns can be carried outside of the home for the first time. What was their reasoning? And I guess, you know, if you could kind of spin that forward and what are going to be what are what are the issues that the lower courts are going to be trying to figure out now? 
Sure. So, you know, the court said that gun regulations have to be rooted in the nation's history and in the text of the Constitution in order to pass constitutional muster. Um, that is another we've been hearing that a lot this term, right? History. The, the court keeps citing back to history uh, in its reasoning um, and that this is a tough new test for gun laws. Um, you know, it's some, something that was sharply criticized by the dissent. Uh, the court's liberal wing said that the majority is really refusing to consider um, that the government has a real interest here in curbing gun violence by issuing regulations um, that crack down on the possession and use of guns. Um, and so what this case really does is it sets us up for other uh, gun restrictions to be challenged. Um, you know, I-, I chatted with legal scholars who think everything from, oh, you know, assault weapons bans to red flag laws. Those are the laws that, you know, a family member or they allow a family member or a police officer to go into court and ask a judge for a court order to stop someone who is a danger to themselves or others from having a gun. Those are likely to be the next sort of fights that we see as a result of the ruling in this case. And then, Greg, if I could put you on the spot a little bit and bring you into this, um, it seems like those fights might happen pretty soon. We saw a number of cases that had been waiting on the Supreme Court's docket for a decision in this case. They got sent back yesterday. I mean, how do you think that the Bruin decision out of New York is going to affect those cases? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It will come back soon. I don't think there is an obvious answer on some of the things that Lydia was talking about with, you know, is an assault weapons ban now constitutional? And that may well mean that some courts say they are constitutional and some say they're not. Um, and then the Supreme Court's going to have to to, to jump in to, to clear that up. Uh, <clears throat> so it probably will come back sooner rather than later. There's also, this is not a Second Amendment case. This is um, uh, actually more like with the EPA, but I think it's worth mentioning here that there is this case, a couple cases now that had been pending for months involving the bump federal bump stock ban, the devices that convert a semi-automatic rifle to an automatic, uh, which the Trump administration banned after the, the Las Vegas shooting. And that's actually an administrative law question. It's, it's much sim- more similar to what we were talking about with the EPA case. But the court, I think it was been sitting there since like December, and they kept relisting this case over and over and over. And they didn't act on it, which suggest, and they're going to apparently deal with it over the summer or in the fall, but they could well take up that case to decide the, the, the Chevron issue there. So that may, may be a gun case that's not really a Second, second Amendment case that we have to deal with very soon. Well, Greg, that provides me with a perfect segue into what we wanted to chat about next, which is next term. Um, Looking forward to next term. It seems like everything's going to go back to what it seemed like before, where we're just doing meat and potatoes cases, nothing really shocking on the docket, and it's going to be real calm, not going to be talking a lot about the Supreme Court, right? Yeah, there will be nothing. Um, these are the last blockbusters decisions we're going to have for the, for this decade. Um, no, they are wasting no time. I think the volume of cases is like near a historic low for next term, but like the number of blockbusters or you know or potential blockbusters is super high. So they're they're starting right off the bat with a big Clean Water Act case. They've got. Uh, a big Voting Rights Act case involving redistricting and, and, and when a state under the Voting Rights Act has to create another uh, majority-minority district. They have the uh, huge College Affirmative Action cases. Um, they have this case where you have the intersection of free speech and, and religion rights with gay rights in the form of a website des- designer who says, I want to create 
websites for for opposite sex weddings, but not same sex weddings. Uh, and Colorado's law would seem to prohibit that. Um, and there's this huge um, election case that they just took uh, on the last day of the term involving uh, the power of state legislatures, which uh, tend to be Republican controlled, and whether they get to set all the rules for federal elections. So. Um, I'll take a breath now. And <laughs> yes, there's a lot of stuff next term already. Greg, you and I on Friday mornings do uh, Twitter spaces where we talk about, um, you know, what's going on down at One First Street. And this morning, our guest referred to that uh, voting case as possibly the most important case of our lifetime. So let's talk a little bit about what's at issue there. Yeah, so this is all about the, a constitutional clause that says that the rules for congressional, for, for federal elections, get set by the state legislatures, uh, the, the phrases uh, state legislature thereof. And um, the question for the court in this case is, does that mean that a state Supreme Court or potentially a, another state agency doesn't get to, well, let me just stick with the, the case before them. Um, does that mean that a state Supreme Court can say, we're interpreting our own constitution to declare that what you, our state legislature, did is unconstitutional under our state constitution? Or is the state Supreme Court barred from doing that? This uh, has, is coming up in the context of a North Carolina redistricting case. Um, it is an issue that um, matters both in kind of a narrow political sense, because as I said, State legislatures tend to be Republican controlled right now, especially in some of the states like North Carolina, where you have, um, you know, that are that are purple and and, and potentially will will um, uh, be tremendously important in terms of the composition of Congress and and the um, and the White House. Um, and it can also affect presidential elections because there's a similar clause that applies to the selection of electors for presidential elections. So it's a really fundamental question about who sets the rules for um, our federal elections. Is it just those legislatures or can other entities like a state Supreme Court say we have other aspects of our law, like our state constitution that prohib prohibits gerrymandering? Um, that, that kick in as well. Yeah. And, you know, this issue isn't completely new to the Supreme Court. I think we saw it um, with regard to some COVID regulations. So I'm thinking about out of Pennsylvania, where, you know, state courts had said, given kind of the, you know, unprecedented nature of what's going on with COVID and the pandemic, that we're going to require you to be, uh, to loosen some rules about when you can mail and balance, how you can vote. Um, and that issue came to the justices. They ultimately decided not to take the case. Um, we got some glimmer, but I don't know how you feel about this, Greg, but I don't feel like I have a good kind of guess as to how all of the justices are going to view this issue and how it's all going to pan out. Yeah, well, so so we have. I mean, it's, it's a somewhat familiar dynamic in that we have um, some justices who have said the conservative justices who have said very clearly they want to jump into this issue, and uh, they, they've written opinions saying we're really skeptical that the state that the a state supreme court has the power to extend the ballot receipt deadline, or in this case, to uh, strike down a voting map that the that the legislature drew, and then you have some justices who. Um, are like Justice Kavanaugh, who um, have been less definitive, but have clearly said, I think the court needs to take take this this issue up. Um, you, you know, it's 
Um, I think with this court, I'm not sure that one should ever assume that the court, I think one can assume most of the time that if a court is taking up an issue like this, um, it is pretty darn skeptical of what the lower court did. Um, and in this case, the lower court said that um, we have power to uh, overturn the map drawn by uh, the state legislature. Wow, so lots ahead to look forward to. <laughs> so maybe we'll try to nab you again once the Supreme Court does start tackling some of these other issues. But for now, we're going to leave it right there. And I just wanted to say thank you to everyone listening. And you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Greg. My pleasure. Anytime. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from corporate filings to diversity within the profession, and even the latest on the burgeoning cannabis industry. Download and subscribe to Bloomberg Tax's Talking Tax, wherever you get your podcasts.